Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to All About Fertility podcast. Today, I'm talking with a nutritionist and dietitian, Stephanie Velakis from The Dietology. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with us. Thanks so much for having me, Ella. Now, Stephanie, I met you last year because you exhibited at All About Fertility Expo and it was really um, great to have you come on board because um, Couch Time Session, your one was just like so busy and everybody was very interested in diet and nutrition, especially around fertility. So yes. I would just love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the dietology. Yeah, so I am an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist based in Sydney, but I consult online pretty much around the world now. Mm. And I help couples and women who are struggling with fertility or hormonal disorders that require some nutritional management to help optimize their chances of conceiving a happy, healthy baby. And so my approach is really based on science, but also really tailoring that science to the individual and not just um, using the same kind of cookie cutter approach to, to each person, but actually sitting down and really listening to people's struggles, yeah. their life, and actually designing something bespoke for them. And I think that's what makes my service um, unique, um, but also effective in terms of the outcomes as well. Yeah, because we all know that one size does not fit all and everybody's situation is completely different. Totally. Yeah. So um, what I would love to talk about today is um, some myths and um, how we're able to optimise our health when um, we are trying to conceive and whether you actually work with people um, who are going through IVF um, and if they've got, you know, other underlying health issues such as endometriosis or PCOS, they're the two biggest things I think that um, come up quite often. Mm -hmm. So um, let's start with, um, yeah, nutrition and how we can optimise our health um, when we're trying to conceive. Yeah, I think obviously this really depends. So I get couples who don't know that, you know, they're going to have any struggle at all, but they're being really proactive and wanting to improve their diet and nutrition before conceiving um, yeah. because maybe they've learned a little bit about the science of what we eat in those months leading up to conceiving uh, can actually change the way our baby's genetics are expressed and therefore their risk of future chronic health conditions later in their life like mm. diabetes or obesity, allergies, eczema, heart disease even. So there's some people that are that are really proactive. They don't know if they're going to have a, a hard time conceiving like the one in eight couples in Australia that do, but mm -hmm. they're trying to be quite proactive about their preconception nutrition and trying to avoid any kind of nutrient deficiencies in particular. Mm -hmm. And then I have kind of my clientele who have PCOS or endometriosis or some gut stuff going on or celiac disease or another mm. kind of health condition that requires some nutritional management that would potentially affect their fertility. They might not necessarily be trying to conceive in the next 12 months, but they'd like to one day and they know that they need to get on top of the management of their particular condition to help optimise their fertility in the future. 
And then I kind of got my third group of couples and ladies who are actively trying to conceive either unassisted or assisted with mm-hmm. some kind of um, comorbidity. So it's either PCOS or endometriosis or, um, uh, yeah, man, I mean, the list is really endless. I see some clients who just are struggling with recurrent miscarriage and are under investigation. Yeah. thyroid conditions, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, autoimmune conditions. So a a full spectrum. And sometimes I don't catch people, especially in IVF, that from the beginning, from egg collection, Mm. you know, often there I catch them in between transfers or um, uh, that kind of space, which it it does make a little bit more challenging uh, in terms Mm. of my work, but um, I like a challenge. (laughs) And and there's definitely things that you can do. And I think as well, you know, once you've been around kind of the IVF kind of merry-go-round a few times, you kind of always are preparing for potentially another egg collection mm-hmm. or another transfer uh, in the future, which is, which is sad, but I think is pragmatic. And so people just want to be prepared yeah. uh, and want to do the best with what they've got and diet and nutrition is part of that picture. So to give you a perspective, um, a Harvard group actually published some research quite a little while ago now and they said five dietary changes that you can make to boost your fertility by up to 69% um, and that is even more so in people who don't ovulate. So um, that's t- typically PCOS, but there's other groups of, of um, women who uh, experience anovulation that can go up to about 80%. So nutrition shouldn't be neglected. Um, in my uh, humble opinion, it should be mandatory for every couple who are trying to conceive and receiving, you know, medical support that should r- receive some nutrition guidance and support. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- that's not the current model of care here in Australia, at least at the moment. But I hope one day that that's what it, yeah. that's what it will look like for people. Now, I think um, health and, you know, staying fit um, is really important when going through this, you know, fertility roller coaster. I mean, myself, including when I was going through IVF, I decided that I was going to start eating healthier, um, more cleaner just so I was able to, you know, be the best version of myself. Now, I hear, um, especially, you know, in the last year or so, um, and that's maybe because I've been looking more into health, um, gut health. Now, this Mm. word has been, um, you know, flown around and everybody talks about gut health, even when you're looking on all the fitness websites, and and there's a, a, a shake for everything, I think. Can you tell us a little bit more about gut health and what and how to improve yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's so funny. I've just been working on some content on this exact topic oh. <laughs> um, coming out in a couple of weeks. So, yes, uh, very relevant. Mm. I think, yes, um, we are beginning to um, draw Uh, links between what's happening in our gut and potentially hormones and fertility. Now, there's a number of different ways that this could be occurring uh, and there's a number of different gut issues that could come into play. So it's not just, you know, you get bloating once a week, oh, that's affecting your fertility. I think we don't want to 
uh, we want to be alert but not anxious about it. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, bloating is normal. Having a few erratic bowel motions here and there without explanation is kind of within the realm of normal. Um, you know, so we have to also educate women that it's okay to like pass wind. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> totally thing. normal. Yeah, it's natural. Um, we don't want to get rid of that. And sometimes I do need to have conversations t- uh, to women about, you know, that their belly isn't completely flat by the end of the day and they want to get, you know, quote unquote rid of that. And I think that's more a body image mm-hmm. concern than it is, you know, a true physiological issue that's going on for them. Um, so yeah, aside from that, that's a whole nother ball, ball, ball game. Um, there's a few key things that I do. Um, I screen in for gut issues with every single one of my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a really, really big part of what I do. Um, and so a few things that we really want to be mindful of is if you are having chronic or ongoing issues um, with diarrhea. Yeah. Now, diarrhea is obviously not great for anybody involved, but it's also a problem when it comes to nutrient absorption. So if your gut, you know, if everything's moving through the gut very quickly, that doesn't give your body much of an opportunity to absorb the nutrition from your food. Mm. And so there is, and on top of that, all your water-soluble vitamins like your B vitamins, including folate uh, and vitamin C, are also going to dissolve in that more watery output and be lost. And so we know people that have chronic diarrhea especially uh, have less chance of absorbing all these important nutrients in their gut. So that is one angle to look at it from. Mm -hmm. The other angle to look at it from is the bacteria themselves that live in the gut. So there's, uh, and hormones themselves. And so I've written a a blog post about this and I do have a podcast episode coming out about this on my podcast, Fertility Friendly Food, about the gut hormone axis, which is I mean, it's been coined before, but um, in the research world. But I've kind of, I've kind of put it out there as a bit of like a hypothesis: yeah. is there a gut hormone axis? And so there is some research suggesting that there's some bacteria that some people have that live in um, our guts that produce a particular enzyme which can uh, activate and deactivate estrogen waste products um, and call, go on for them to, you know, have biological effects on the body so that means if our you know our liver has already done the work and um, converted excess estrogen into its waste product if it and it obviously needs to leave your body via your stool and so if it comes across lots of these bacteria producing this particular enzyme and all those waste products are then reactivated in the gut and the estrogen can then go on and do its work again, for somebody who has an estrogen-dominating condition like, say, endometriosis, for example, that's probably not ideal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the what's going on in the gut is also really important when it comes to our hormone health. So... That, that's just a couple of different ways. The other things to consider is uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. We know women have increased demands for key nutrients and need additional management, um, especially around prenatal supplementation around that, um, as well as managing any kind of um, flares and, and inflammation associated with that. Mm. And the other aspect is um, celiac disease, which we know is a 
unmanaged or undiagnosed can be a pretty um, direct cause of both male and female infertility. Mm -hmm. So managing really well with a strict gluten-free diet with your dietitian is really key, Mm -hmm. um, as well as prioritising those key nutrients that we know are compromised on a gluten-free diet. And then the other angle is IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, which is a category that almost all the women that I see um, uh, will tell will tell me that they fall into. You know, mm-hmm. they're having some episodes of bloating a few times a week. Um, it's quite significant. They have, you know, they swing between constipation and diarrhea, and they're passing wind all the time, and they're uncomfortable, and they're very sensitive. and And uh, I always try and make sure that we've excluded everything else medically with their doctor. So have we excluded celiac disease? Have we excluded Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? Have we excluded a parasite infection? Mm. Um, Have we excluded endometriosis? Because a lot of women, about 50%, have both endo and IBS. And sometimes, you know, people like me who got diagnosed with IBS, you know, many years before I had endometriosis, Mm. but post endo management, I don't have one symptom of IBS anymore. So it can look different on different people. So we do need to make sure that it truly is irritable bowel syndrome. And then we want to manage that really well from a combination of nutrition, yes, but also stress management, um, any kind of um, over-the-counter things that we can also utilise um, that are natural that can also help um, with managing symptoms. There's been some research to suggest that there is a slight increased risk of miscarriage, I believe 7 to 8% um, in women with IBS. Now, the mechanism is not known. However, my hypothesis again would be that potentially it would be amongst those who have IBS type diarrhea um, and maybe they're losing some of those critical nutrients um, as a potential explanation, but the, there is no explanation at the at the moment as to why we've seen that association in the literature. So there's a lot we can do if you've got a problem. Mm. If you don't have a problem, you're just thinking, what can I do to support my gut health? The best thing you can do is to eat lots and lots of different types of plants in your diet. High fiber diet is what you want to be aiming for. The gold standard is you want 30 different types of plants a week. So that includes nuts and seeds, fruit and veg, legumes and beans, and whole grains. So across those food groups, you want to be getting 30 different types of things into your body each and every week. That diversity is key to supporting a healthy gut. And so if you don't have any issues, um, but you want to know how you can best support your gut, that's a really, really good point uh, um, like platform to start on. And then you can look at the addition of your fermented foods like Um, authentic kombucha and kefir and sauerkraut or um, kimchi, these types of foods that have those organic acids and fermented properties that can also help nourish your gut as well. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. I really didn't know that. Um, So while we're on foods, um, I've heard that the Mediterranean diet was really quite good for someone who is on their fertility journey. Um, So let's talk about some myths. Like I've heard that um, eating, you know, avocado is really good for you because, you know, when you cut through it um, and you see the stone, it looks like a pregnant woman or, you know, eating the core of um, 
pineapple is supposed to be really good for the fertility. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, in terms of avocado, and I, I mean, obviously there's things that look nature sometimes, you know, is a bit cheeky and <laughs> makes it look look a certain way. I mean, um, I just saw this Instagram post that was like, you know, because, you know, uh, oh, I can't even remember now, because something looks like an ear, like a particular fruit or vegetable looks like an ear, eat it for healthy hearing. Uh. Um just because something looks like something else doesn't mean it's going to be good for that particular ailment or part of your body. Mm -hmm. um, however, avocado is a really great um, food rich in our healthy fats and folate and fibre. Um, however, I do see a lot of people overdoing avocado mm -hmm. um, and they feel like it's a permission ticket to, you know, go ham. <laughs> the issue the issue tends to be is people tend to eat a bit too much all at once um and for some that can contribute to some maybe undesirable weight gain yeah. so just be mindful of um how much and how often i think it's definitely something you want to be including um for those benefits how, however in how terms of it, getting you pregnant um I just I generally say half a small one or a quarter of an abo if you're going to you know spread it on a piece of toast mm. or something like that that might be um a, a really good way to go about it. Um so yes, I think that's a good starting point in terms of avocado. Mm -hmm. And all of our hormones as well are made off fat. So we want to make sure we do uh, do get enough fat in the diet. It's not about a low fat diet, it's about the right types of fats in the diet. So avocado is definitely one. Now the pineapple core, oh, my goodness, I wish I had a, a dollar for every time I had to answer this question, Ella. I wouldn't have to be a dietitian anymore. So uh, <laughs> it's up there, up there with the coffee questions, oh I reckon, because okay. we're so dependent on coffee. Um, so the reason why the whole pineapple core thing came about was because pineapple, pineapple in general contains this really unique enzyme called bromelain. Mm -hmm. And it's responsible for why you get that bit of a fairy, you know, that kind of weird feeling you get on your tongue after you yeah, eat pineapple. Yeah. It's a little bit like almost like it's raw. Yeah. Well, bromelain is this really cool enzyme that actually digests proteins, including our proteins. And, um, you know, many of our cells are made up of protein. So pineapple, when you eat it, it's actually eating you back, which is really weird yeah. to think about. <laughs> but um, the core, the, the idea around uh, eating the pineapple core, I'm not sure whether it's more concentrated in bromelain. I'm not sure where this came about, yeah. um, but the idea is that bromelain might have a very weak blood thinning effect, similar to kind of like, I guess, when you think about what aspirin does, the blood thinner, mm -hmm. it's not the same as aspirin. Obviously, don't replace pineapple for your aspirin. Yeah. Um, but that this is where the idea came about, is that bromelain is a very weak blood thinner. If we can thin the blood and promote healthy blood flow, that will help the embryo stick and blah, 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 blah. Mm. We don't have any scientific research for it. Yeah. Um, and the effect that we suspect that bromelain would actually have in terms of thinning our blood would probably be quite small. However, if you want to eat it, you can eat it. Uh, embrace the fruit. I, I'm, I really don't care. Um, can you visit me? But 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. But don't, you know, bank on it because I see a lot of people like putting all their eggs in the one basket, you know, the pomegranate juice and the Mm. pineapple core and the McDonald's French fries on the way home from the chance. Like, you know, we... McDonald's French fries? I haven't heard that. Yes. The salt, apparently, the salt is what what is going to help. I don't know. I don't know. Um, But you know what? I just think it's comfort food. You know, you do you, boo. If you want the comfort food on the way home, (laughs) girl, you deserve it. That's fine. Absolutely. I don't mind. (laughs) But don't, don't, um, you know, um, I guess put, yeah, put so much onto it that it's going to, you know, save the day kind of situation because, it probably won't. I mean, these kind of things, like I get lots of questions about, what do you eat in the two-week wait? And I'm like, look, it, it really matters what you you did when you were growing those eggs and when your partner was, um, you know, if you've got a male partner, you know, what he was eating before he gave his sperm. And, um, you know, if you're doing egg donation or embryo donation, it's really the lead-up that's really important, you know. So, yes, there's little things that we can do in the two-week wait, but, I like to focus on the the months before so that you don't stress when it comes to the two-week wait or you don't stress if you get pregnant in the first trimester, you feel really awful and nauseous and you're eating, you know, wheat bix and crackers all day. Mm. Um, And you're like, oh, my God, I haven't eaten one vegetable. Like, how am I growing this baby? Um, So it is really about the preparation and the lead-up rather than, you know, what you do on the finish line. And I think that's really the message that, I'm trying to convey to my to everyone out there, but also especially my IVF um, clients and anyone listening that's going through IVF. Like, try and try and get on top of it earlier rather than later, because um, the finish line stuff uh, it takes a while for all these things to work. You know, the way you eat uh, changes your health over years and months, not in days. So, yeah, yeah. that's really important. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think, or I hope most people are aware of the benefits of eating healthy before they start trying to conceive, or while they're trying to conceive. But it can also be quite difficult to start changing your eating habits. What three points would you give to someone who's starting their health journey while trying to conceive? I think if I was to say what your three main points are, if you're just starting out, would be... Number one, I think, would be just uh, like I always talk about it as domains of control Um, because often what happens Mm -hmm. is for a lot of the couples that I see is like some the control out of conception has left, right? It's now out of your hands if you're getting assisted Mm -hmm. reproductive treatments. Um, Well, a lot of it you feel as though it's out of your hands. And diet and nutrition is that element that you can control and your fitness and your sleep and your stress, you know, these are all things that are within your domain Mm. of control. Now, I think that's great and I love it when people are like, you know, let let me do all that I can do. However, when it's taking over and causing you to stress um, to the point of it's potentially not benefiting you anymore. Do you know what I mean? So I think perspective is really key on what your domains of control are do the best that you can but don't aim for perfection um you know i get worried when people do things too well when they come back and they tell me that they haven't you know that they did everything perfectly and there's like i get concerned i'm not like woohoo i'm like what's wrong (laughs) um 
because it's not human, you know, to be perfect all the time. It's not human yeah. to, um, uh, it, it's natural. Um, and it's also natural to want to rebel and drink or, you know, um, not exercise or stay up late or um, have a cigarette or whatever. This is all natural human behavior. And so we don't need to beat ourselves up about that. Yes, yeah, sure. but I think it is important to do what you can within your domain of control to improve your chances. So I think that's number one, which I think is more around a mindset shift rather than you know any kind of you know food recommendations. In terms of food stuff, um, probably the two biggest things that I'd probably like to leave um, our listeners with is number one, try and eat seafood regularly a couple times a week is ideal um you can do oily fish even better like salmon or trout or mackerel or sardines um there's been research to show that it's beneficial for egg health sperm health reduce yep. time to conception all sorts of benefits um there's really no downsides <laughs> and the second would to be try going vegetarian once a week for one of your meals whether that be dinner or whatever, try and incorporate some legumes and beans, um, especially to give your diet a big boost in fiber, um, yeah. zinc. Um, it's great for your gut health, it's great for sperm health, great for egg health. Yeah. Um, there's been some research to show that we, uh, couples who substitute some of their animal protein for vegetable protein uh, have shorter times to conception. So that's another another good tip. And yeah, I think just change, changing up your proteins, you know, a lot of couples I meet just eat chicken and yes. chicken, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, you know, there may be a red meat once, once here or there, or maybe they're vegetarian or maybe they're pescatarian or whatever. And mm. all of these can work, but it's about diversity of those proteins in particular. So you're getting all the different benefits and nutrient profiles from them as well. Stephanie, thank you so much for um, sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. I'm sure this episode will help someone. I know I've learned a few things. Oh, I'm glad. Thanks for having me. I'm a firm believer in preparing your body before conception. And a healthy diet not only helps the quality of your eggs and sperm, but it will also improve your mood and your energy. And I know it's difficult to start sometimes, but a few simple adjustments to your diet by introducing certain foods, just as Stephanie has suggested, is a great starting point. If you'd like to get in touch with Stephanie for more information or for a free 15-minute consult, head to her website. All the details will be in the description box. I hope you'll join me for a cuppa next week um, with another episode. Until next week, keep safe.